We all want to be somebody, right? To matter, to make a difference in the world. If that's you, then buckle up. You are about to intersect with the change makers, the trailblazers, the unsung heroes that are making a difference day in and day out. You are about to step into something extraordinary, something that will reverberate far beyond this place. This is your chance to make a difference, to matter, to be somebody. Are you ready? A wave of extraordinary generosity is about to be unleashed down our streets and around the globe. Want to be a part of it? Good, because it takes a lot of people to change the world. And we're just crazy enough to think we can, but not without you. And you, and you too. Actually, over 100,000 of us, united under one rallying cry, to give, to serve, and to love. So, welcome to the team. Welcome to the movement. Welcome to Be Rich. Hey, everybody. Greetings from Atlanta, Georgia. I wanted to take just a moment to welcome you to Be Rich. Today, your church, along with churches in Atlanta, 65 other churches around the country are launching Be Rich, our annual campaign of generosity. What will happen is this. Over the next few weeks, we're going to unleash a wave of extraordinary generosity through over 300 nonprofits all around the world. Over 115,000 of us are going to participate. That includes 30,000 children and students, about 85,000 adults. We're going to give, serve, and love the people in our communities as well as communities many miles away from our local communities. Now, today is the official launch of our 12th year of Be Rich. Over the last 11 years, there have been over 336,000 hours served and over $35 million given. Now, for those of you who have participated in Be Rich in the past, you know that you are a part of those numbers. But more significantly, you are a part of what God has done and is doing all over the world. As a veteran of Be Rich, you know what's coming. You know the experience and how fun it is and how rewarding it is when we come together to give and serve and love. And if you're new to Be Rich, we couldn't be more excited that you're joining us for the first time. Now, our aim or our goal every year is 100% participation, and your church staff is ready for you to participate. They have been out gathering great projects with great nonprofit partners in your city. And so you know, 100% of the money that you raise will go to fund projects in your community vetted by your church staff. As always, 100% of what is given is then given away. So the bottom line is this. We're asking 100% of you to give, and then your church will give 100% of the money away. Now, if you're new to Be Rich, you may be wondering, why do they call it Be Rich? And here's the answer to that question. In the first century, the apostle Paul wrote a letter to his apprentice or his protege, Timothy. And in that letter, he said the following. He said, command those who are rich in this present world to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. You see, according to the apostle Paul, rich people are to be rich in good deeds and they're to be generous with their money. So every year we practice being rich. 
for a couple of reasons. To begin with, most of us are richer than we think, and I know you don't feel rich, and I also know that's the goal, isn't it, to feel rich? But here's something that may cause you to rethink your current financial status. According to the global rich list, if you make over $33,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Now that's worth repeating. If you make over $33,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Now that's a bit disconcerting, isn't it? More than likely, you are in the top 1% or at least the top 5% of wage earners in the entire world. And not only do you not feel rich, you feel financial pressure, financial pressure that would not make a bit of sense to over half the world's population. Now that's really strange, isn't it? But don't feel bad. Most rich people feel financial pressure. And you know why? Because most rich people aren't very good at being rich. We spend right up to our income level and then we pull out our credit cards and we just keep right on spending. And when financial margin disappears, financial pressure appears. Where there's no margin, there is no peace, no matter how much money you make. But financial pressure isn't the only consequence of not being good at being rich. Our generosity takes a hit as well, right? I mean, here's a really disturbing trend. In terms of percentage, the more a person makes, the more people make, the less they actually give. As the average income increases, the percentage given decreases. Again, we just aren't all that good at being rich. So every year during Be Rich, I take an opportunity to remind all of us that we're better off than we think, but we need to get better at being better off. And that's one reason we do Be Rich. But there's another, perhaps a more compelling reason we do Be Rich. The church should be known for its compassion and its generosity. Why? Well, because Jesus was, and we're his body, we're his hands, we're his feet, and our communities. And we want people who don't follow Jesus to admire and respect his followers so that perhaps one day they would be open to the message that serves as the context for our generosity, namely, for God so loved that he gave. So through Be Rich, we remind people that everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. So thank you. Thank you for participating in Be Rich. A few weeks from now, we're gonna celebrate together the generosity and compassion that God inspired in and through all of us. So ahead of time, thank you for your generosity and your compassion to your community and to the world. Now, before we launch this extravaganza of generosity, your team thought it would be helpful to consider the example of Jesus and the first century church. And to help us do that, here's a segment of a message I shared with our Atlanta-based churches just a short time ago. I love what we're going to talk about today. Um, It's a very core message for me personally, um, just because I think of what I've experienced in life and the opportunities I've had that are similar to many of the opportunities that you've had to travel around the world to see what God is doing around the world. And the, the thing that's so exciting to me about all this is that what we do at Be Rich really is at the heart of Christianity. Because at the heart of Christianity is this idea that God became one of us and dwelt among us. That God became one of us and dwelt among us. John, the gospel writer, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, he wrote one of the gospels. He wrote some letters that were later circulated around with first century Christians. John, who believed in Jesus, 
then he disbelieved, um, and then he wasn't sure what to believe, and then he became a believer once again after the resurrection, and he went out and kept talking about Jesus so much so that the Roman Empire got tired of it, and under Emperor Domitian, he was eventually arrested and exiled to the Isle of Patmos, Patmos, where he had even more time to think about what he believed. John said this, after spending time with Jesus, looking back, he's an old man, he's an old man, he's outlived probably all the other apostles, He's outlived most of his friends. He's sitting on the Isle of Patmos and he's thinking back over his time with Jesus. And this was his conclusion after spending three or three and a half years with Jesus. He wrote this. He said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This was his way of saying that God took on human form and dwelt among them. Years after the fact, he's still absolutely convinced that his friend Jesus was more than a friend. He was more than a rabbi. He was more than a teacher. He was more than a good man, that he was in fact sent from God and was in some mystical way, the unique son of God. But why? Why would God come and spend time in this world? Why would God become one of us? Jesus actually answered that question. Uh, in John chapter 17, John actually overheard Jesus praying and he wrote down part of this prayer and Jesus prayed this. He said, Father, he said, I have, he's at the end of his ministry, I have glorified or explained or magnified you or reflected you well. I have glorified you on the earth. And then check this out. Having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. And typically when we think about what Jesus came to do, we think about Jesus coming to pay for the sin of all mankind, which was certainly a big part of what he did. But Jesus said, at this point, at this juncture, before I go to the cross, I have already glorified you on the earth and I have accomplished the work which you've given me to do. It was his way of saying, I came to explain you to mankind. I've done everything I can to make you so personable, so here, so present. I've accomplished that part of what I've done. That Jesus came. Jesus came, and this is such an incredible thought, that Jesus came to take the guesswork out of God. That Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation of God. He didn't simply come to teach the ways of God. At one point, one of his closest followers toward the end said, Jesus, just show us the Father. I mean, you keep talking about the Father. You illustrate the Father, but show us the Father. And Jesus smiled and said, Philip, why do you think I'm here? I am as close as you will ever get to understanding the Father. If you've seen me, this is as close as you'll ever get to seeing what God is like. But in demonstrating what God was like, Jesus did something else that blew the first century folks' minds. He demonstrated and he illustrated whom God liked. And this was shocking. This was absolutely shocking to people in the first century. It was certainly shocking to even his own people, the Jewish people in Judea and Galilee in the first century. In fact, if you're not a Christian or you used to be a Christian or the, the whole church thing kind of bothered you and you're here because somebody invited you or you're watching because you know, I don't know why you're watching, you just decided to watch or you're staying over with friends and they say, if you spend the day with us, we have to go to church or, or watch church. If you don't hear anything else I say, I would just like for this to sit in your mind for a while because this is something that I think many of us miss. That notions like God is love, you've heard that before. Notions like God loves everybody, you've heard that before. You may even believe that. You may be a general theist. You're not an atheist. You're not agnostic. You just don't really know, but you believe if there's a God, certainly God is some sort of loving God. Or perhaps you've seen a bumper sticker that says everybody matters to God. You need to know and understand. All three of these ideas are uniquely Christian ideas. 
that Jesus introduced these ideas to the world, that the Greek and Roman gods didn't love anybody. The Greek and Roman gods toyed with people. The Greek and Roman gods did not care for people, and consequently, they didn't require anyone to care. So when Jesus introduced this idea that God is a God who loves everybody, and he doesn't just love Jewish people, he loves those outside the Jewish world. This was a brand new idea. And to compound the confusion for first century people, and to, and to show you the extraordinary contrast Jesus was to his culture, you have to understand something about a slave culture. In the Roman Empire, there were more slaves than there were Roman citizens. All over the world, all over the world, slavery was an assumption. It was not a social issue. It was an assumption. The economy derived benefit from slavery. Slavery was here to stay. And in a slave culture, in a slave culture, a slave culture devalues everyone. And here's what we don't think about. A slave culture devalues everyone because everyone, everyone is one string of bad luck away from slavery. If a nation invaded your tribe, if a group of people invaded your town, your hometown, you could become a slave. If your husband died, ladies, you could become a slave. If you were injured and were no longer able to work, you could become a slave. If you couldn't pay your debts, you could become a slave. Everybody in the first century, everybody in the early century, everybody in ancient times was potentially somebody's property. Nobody had intrinsic value. Nobody had inherent value. Everybody had economic value, and that was it. And when Jesus showed up, even in that Jewish culture, the temple system had devolved to the point where even the religious leaders played to their own version of karma and a caste system, that they used their laws, their Jewish laws, to keep women and sinners and Samaritans and shepherds and lepers and the lame in their place, always reminding the populace that God favored the powerful, that God favored the wealthy, that God favored those who had the resources to force their way into society, that God primarily favored prosperous, healthy men, and that poverty and illness were a sign of God's disfavor, that if you were sick, it's because God was punishing you, or perhaps your parents did something and God was punishing your parents by punishing you. But if you were rich and prosperous, clearly you had the favor of God. And in a culture like that, in a culture that was depicted primarily with slavery and enslavement, the whole idea of compassion was completely unnecessary. Because in that world, people got what they deserved. And poor people were getting what they deserved. And the sick people were getting what they deserved. And the rich people were getting what they deserved. <laughs> and then along came the rabbi from Galilee. And everywhere he went, he elevated everybody's dignity. That he taught in such a way that you began to get the, the impression that compassion was an expression of strength, not weakness. And to do for someone who could never ever repay you back and do for you was a sign of virtue. And that being meek did not mean being weak, and that people had inscribed, people had an intrinsic, people had inherent value. They were valuable just because they were human. They weren't just, they just have this ascribed value based on their economic worth or their ability to produce in society. 
Jesus would elevate the status of women. Ladies, I've said this before. Every woman should follow Jesus, whether you believe he's the son of God or not, just because of what he did for women in the first century. In the first century, Jesus gave women dignity in such a way it didn't even fit with the Jewish or the Greek or the Roman culture. It was unbelievable. He gave status and dignity to the poor, to the sick. And then he would stun his audience over and over and over with his teaching. These are the stories that we're most familiar with. That he made a Samaritan, a hero over a priest and a Levite. That in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus did something for the entire world that we've still not recovered from. Jesus redefined neighbor. That for Jewish people, much like sometimes American people or people who look like you or people in your community, a neighbor is someone who's like you. And Jesus said, no, that's not what a neighbor is in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, a neighbor is anyone who has a need that you can meet. That Jesus told the story of the trilogy of lost things. And in this trilogy, he basically explained to us and to the world and to his immediate audience that God doesn't view sinners as someone to chase down and punish. That God views sinners as someone to chase down and recapture their attention. That God goes after sinners not to pay them back, but to win them back. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, not only are you not to hate your enemies, but God views your enemies, even those you hate the most, in such a way that you have permission and have been invited to pray for them and to look for opportunities to do good for your enemies, which introduced the idea of doing good for people who would never, ever do good for you. I'm telling you, my friends, this was absolutely, absolutely unheard of. And then one day, Jesus is standing at the temple. He walks into the temple, and he says to his guys, stop right here, stop right here, watch this. And they stand back in the shadows and they watch a long line of people come by and put an offering in their big barrel that they gave money to to support the temple. And a small, bent-over woman comes by and she slowly puts her hand over the edge and the ledge and she drops something and you can't even hear it hit the bottom and she walks away. And Jesus said, did you see that? That woman is rich in the kingdom of heaven. But that was nothing. That was nothing. What he taught was nothing compared to what he did. If you want to know what someone means by what they say, watch what they do. If you want to know what someone means by what they say, watch what they do. Jesus' interactions with people were so completely unorthodox. In Jesus' time in the first century, cleanliness was literally next to godliness. The more holy you were, the more clean you stayed. Jesus turned it all upside down, and he said, dirty hands, dirty hands, holy heart. Dirty hands, holy heart. Dirty is the new holy. His interactions were, 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 so, were so unorthodox. He stopped and had a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Jewish men did not speak to Samaritan women, but he didn't stop there. He said something we read, we go by this so quickly, we can't imagine the implications for this woman. He said, I want you to drop your Samaritan bucket into your Samaritan well, and I want you to allow me to place that bucket to my lips and drink from it. This blew all of her categories. This was so socially abnormal. This was so unorthodox. Jesus would not only heal sick people, he would touch them. In that day and age, religious people never touched sick people because sick people were cursed by God. And why would a religious holy person touch a sick person? And Jesus not only touched them, not only embraced them, not only touched their sores and their eyes and their skin, the most amazing thing happened as a revelation that the kingdom of God had come. 
Not only when Jesus touched people did he not get sick, they got well. And then he would visit the most unusual people. Not only did he invite Matthew, the tax gatherer, the embarrassment to his family, to his tribe, to his whole nation, especially to his family. Not only did he invite Matthew to follow him. He said, Matthew, I want you to follow me. And we're going to go to your house. And I'm sure his disciples are thinking, you may go, but we're not going. It's bad enough you've talked to him. It's bad enough you've asked him to follow us. But we're not going to go into his cootie-infected, sinner-infected home. We're not going to eat his food. We're not going to touch his utensils. And we're not going to eat anything that was prepared in his kitchen. And Jesus said, yes, we are. And they went, and they had a meal with Matthew. And then one day he looked up in a tree and there was the little short Zacchaeus, the, the, the tax gatherer. He said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house too. And Peter's like, see, we keep doing this. We keep going to tax gatherer's house. There goes our reputation. There goes our ceremonial uncleanliness. No wonder the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't want to be around us. We hang around with all the wrong people. And Jesus says, you don't understand. Something new has happened. This is a new age. This is a new era. Something new has come. God is demonstrating what God is like and how God views people. And God elevates the dignity of every single person because he does not look at people through the lens of economics. He looks at people through the lens of having been made and fashioned in his image. One day a centurion, a centurion, a reminder that the Jews were cursed by God and under God's judgment because Rome was in town. A centurion comes to Jesus and ask for a favor. And I'm sure once again his disciples are like, surely you are not going to do a centurion a favor. And Jesus healed his servant. That Jesus went out of his way. Jesus went out of his way. Jesus went out of his way to declare the value of the very people that society had branded as having no value. And when Jesus left this planet, his disciples, his earliest followers, they got it. I'm telling you, they got it. In fact, the very first problem in the history of the church was they couldn't get Peter and John and Andrew, the guys who had spent so much time with Jesus, they could not get those guys to stop taking care of widows. They could not stop them from making sure everybody had enough food to eat. And finally, they said to them, look, this is Acts chapter 6. Look, guys, okay, we appreciate the fact that you don't think you're better than the rest of us. You don't think you're not trying to get all uppity. You're not, you know, not trying to pretend like you're too good to do anything. But we really need you to preach and teach. You are eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus. Can we please get somebody else to wait on table so you can teach? And they had to pry their hands open from serving people that needed to be served. Why? Because after three and a half years with Jesus, after watching him and experiencing him, washing their dirty feet and taking away all of their excuses, they got it. And after the resurrection, the church got it as well. In fact, no strings attached, no strings attached, compassion and generosity became the hallmark of the first century church. This is one of the most amazing untold stories in history that the early church actually believed that they had eternal life. And because they believed that they had eternal life, they did not fear death. And when plagues would ravage their villages and towns, and everyone would head for a different place to be safe, the Christians, history tells us, would stay back and take care of the poor 
and take care of those who could not leave town under their own power and in many cases would perish right along with friends and neighbors and strangers. In the first century, it was not illegal for parents that had a baby that they didn't wanna keep to take the baby to the edge of the forest or down by the river and expose that baby. In fact, that was the term they used, terminology. They would expose their children. This was not illegal. In the Roman Empire, it was not illegal because essentially parents were not killing their children. They were leaving their children to their fate. That's what they would say. We are leaving our child, our baby, to the fate, to the fates and to their personal fate. And so if fate would have it that that child survives, so be it. But if that child suffers or is eaten by an animal or freezes in the night or rolls into the river or is carried off by someone with evil intentions, so be it. It was their fate. This was not illegal. And do you know what the Christians did in the Roman Empire? The Gentile Christians who understood Jesus' command to treat people the way that you've been treated by your father through Jesus, that they understood it's not the Ten Commandments anymore. It's not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's bigger than that. It's love others as God through Christ has loved you. They got it. And it was the Christians that would go down to the river and to the edge of the forest and take these little babies and bring them home even though they barely had enough food to eat themselves, even though their homes were so small. And they would raise these children as their own. Why? Because this was what they understood Jesus to have commanded his followers to do. This is what they felt like Christianity should represent in culture. And interestingly enough, 100, 200, 230 years later, Constantine converts to Christianity. Christianity is no longer a persecuted religion. A few years after that, Christianity becomes the religion of the empire. And one of the first laws that was, in, that was passed, one of the first things that changed is they made exposure of babies a capital offense. Why? Because of the teaching of Jesus. This is why I, I don't understand. I, I do understand, but I don't understand why everyone, why everyone would not consider becoming a follower Jesus. And it goes beyond that. It goes beyond the first century. The teaching of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, they have shaped the conscience of our nation. The reason you think you should be fair is not because you're a Christian. The reason you think you should be fair and treat people justly, it's not because you are inherently a good person either. It's because our culture, the conscience of our nation and the conscience of our culture has been shaped by the teachings of the New Testament that Republicans and Democrats debate. They debate and they debate and debate and they disagree on how to best legislate or to how to create and pass laws that are best for people. They disagree about what's best for people. But for the most part, nobody in our nation and none of our nation's leaders are against what's best for people. That in general, we believe that what's best for a person is what's best. That what's best for a child is what's best. That what's best for a woman is what's best. That what's best for the poor is what's best. That our culture understands the dignity of the individual. That is not natural. That is a leftover. It is a shadow. It is a shade of the teaching of Jesus that's impacted our culture. And so, the church's role today in our generation the church's role all over the world, the church's role in your community and in my community is to remind the world through our personal behavior and through our corporate behavior that red, yellow, black, or white, everybody is precious in the sight of God. And while we may be criticized for what we believe, and that's not gonna change, we should be famous for our compassion and generosity because this is the pattern our Savior left 
us. Now, my assumption is that you look for opportunities to live this out all year long or you wouldn't be here and you wouldn't have come at the invitation of a friend. This isn't a new idea. In fact, as you listen to this, you think, yes, 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 that's the kind of person I am. That's the first kind of person I want to be. So all of us are trying to live this out the best that we can. But once a year, once a year, we come together to do something big and bold in the name of Jesus. Something so big and so bold that our communities take notice. And we're not doing it for personal attention. We're doing it to be, have an opportunity to say to our community, of course we would be generous. Of course we would be compassionate. Of course we would help you do what you're doing so well in our communities. This is what our Savior has commanded us to do. And we call it Be Rich, an extravaganza of generosity. Now, if you're part of the network churches that are participating in Be Rich this season, we're so glad that you've joined us. And right now, your lead pastor or your senior pastor is going to come and explain what your church has in store for your community. All right, guys, do you guys enjoy that? Fantastic. So I'm going to kind of let you guys know how this is going to happen. Um, Riley is going to come out. And by the way, y'all give it up for Riley. I don't know if y'all have introduced him publicly. But Raleigh is our, uh, one of our new worship leaders here at OneChurch.tv, and uh, good guy, really good dude. So, uh, so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to stand up here in a sack, and uh, we are going to uh, sing, and then Raleigh is going to dismiss us, and then we're actually going to go out in the hallway. And in the hallway, there's going to be a bunch of people out there. Uh, there's going to be some buckets out there. You're going to see some balloons, and we're just going to ask you to be able to 100% of us to be able to actually get on board and say, you know what, I'm willing to give $39.95. Now, I'm going to let you guys know, as your pastor, I've already done this. Last night, I went on our app. In fact, there's a lot of different ways you can give. Um, but I would encourage you, this is one way. If you didn't bring a check or anything like that or cash, you can go on the onechurch.tv app, and you can click on Giving. And from there, you can actually give your $39.95. Or we're going to have some iPads out in the hallway and uh, with little swipey swipers. Um, and uh, you can uh, bring your credit card and you can give $39.95 that way. It really doesn't matter how you give. What matters is that you give. Because our favorite Bible verse, you've heard this, For God so loved the world that he gave. You see, our Heavenly Father, He is so for you, and He's so for us, that He gave what was most precious to Him, His own Son, His own Son, so that we could have a relationship with Him. And if God did that for you and for me, for those that call ourselves Christians, which means little Christ. For those that call us followers of Jesus. We should be generous. We should be compassionate. We should be willing to give. And even if you're here and you're like, yeah, I, I don't call myself a Christian. I don't use that label. Whatever label you use, know this that God wants to use you in somebody else's life. So we're getting ready to stand and sing. So go ahead and let those recliners start going down. Listen. 
Yeah. All right. And we're going to stand and sing. And then when Riley dismisses, let's all go out and let's 100% of us, let's be rich together. Take it away, Riley.